Continuing on in our reading through the book of Genesis, we come to Genesis 44, starting in verse 14, and we'll read through verse 34, which is the end of the chapter. Lend your attention, this is God's word. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose can the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, How, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with a sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Thus far, the reading of God's word. We turn to Matthew chapter 9. Come to verse 14. It's the last discourse in the interlude between a series of miracles before we 
commence the final series of miracles in this section of Matthew's Gospel. We can note once more that both of these teachings from the Lord are concerning who he is as the physician and here as the bridegroom and what that means for his followers. Sinners whom he has come to heal and friends to whom he has brought great joy. So we come to verse 14. This is God's word. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Thus ends God's word. Join me in prayer. great God, help us now as your word is read and preached to receive and believe and yield, O Lord, our lives in faith, in the light of who Christ is, of who you are. And what you call us to as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks for the word of joy. That your kindness sent to a sad and dark world. We thank you for the true participation in that joy, even now. And we long for the day when joy will be established as all in all, as once more Christ returns and is with his people bodily. Sustain us, O Lord, in this. Teach us, O Lord, of the riches of this. Strengthen us. We ask in Christ's name, amen. In God's providence, we think of a wedding feast even as we announce a funeral. In some ways, it encapsulates the strange position that we occupy. 
as those who have the high privilege of living on this side of the cross. Living on this side of not just the Lord's earthly ministry, but the conquering of sin and death, the rending of the veil that separated God and man. Just as we sang, God and sinners reconciled peace. It's a great privilege for us to live in this gospel time. Because the gospel isn't just an announcement that good things are coming. The gospel is bringing those good things now. And yet, that's not the whole story, is it? It's the heart of the matter. And I think that that's the point of the text. The point of the text is that there's all sorts of misconceptions about what true religion is. At the time, it was the misconception that true religion consisted in these external acts. And incidentally, you need to be pretty gloomy. We're offended by your feast. Let's not lose the context. They're coming off of a feast. They're feasting. The joy of salvation has come to Matthew. Matthew brings those for whom he has a fondness into proximity with the joy of salvation. That's what's happening here. So he throws a feast out of the joy of salvation. He invites other sinners to come to this feast and meet the one who is the reason for the joy of salvation. And then a bunch of people get all fussy about it. They get fussy along two lines. The first is, how dare you show kindness to sinners? And the second one is, how dare you feast? You're too joyful. <laughs> That's not what religion is about. Now, it's worth pointing out that I, I do think Jesus was much gentler to the disciples of John. I think the disciples of John asked an earnest question here, and he gives them an earnest answer. I think we can mark the difference between how John's disciples ask a question to the Lord, desiring to understand, and how the Pharisees, like vipers, tried to destroy the disciples by veiling their poison in questions. But at the same time, the Lord Jesus Christ is confronting a misconception about what true religion is. And he says, true religion is like a wedding feast. Like God and man sitting down to table together. Like a husband gazing at his beloved with an affection the likes of which you're not going to fully understand until you're the object of that gaze in full. But you are understanding it even now. As week in and week out, we feast as it were, waiting the great feast. That's what we say every week, isn't it? I'm not going to drink this cup again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We taste the feast awaiting the feast, as it were. And in that interim, while the heart of the matter is joy, we're also aware that there's still groaning and difficulty. 
But that difficulty doesn't displace the heart of the matter. Because the heart of the matter is that Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. And so let's consider the reason we have this morning for joy, even in the face of actual difficulty. And it is our King. Our King who defends us. Our King who calls us his friends. And our King who brings new wine. First, our King defends us. Another question. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. I'm struck by how the Lord Jesus Christ takes up the defense of his disciples, both in this scene and the one immediately before that. Jesus draws near in kindness to sinners. His disciples go with him, and they get attacked. Jesus is feasting, and the disciples join in his joy, and they get criticized. And in both cases, it is the Lord who comes to their defense. And just from a literary level, the disciples don't say anything. It's not they who do the defending. It's the Lord who does the defending of his own. And it's not just that he's defending them in their course of action. He's taking up their cause as his own because it is his own. As the opposition that they run into comes as they're following Christ. Now he's already said this is going to happen. All the way back in Matthew 5, blessed are you when you're reviled for my name. Blessed are you when you incur these cruelties, these suspicions, these criticisms from the world as you are following me. Because in this you have good encouragement that we're together. And I assure you that wherever I am, you're safe. And so we're struck here by the friendship of our Lord on display. Friendship comes through plainly in the bridal imagery, the wedding imagery. It's difficult to know how to translate the phrase, whether it's sons of the wedding feast, meaning guests of the wedding, or whether it's more like friends of the groom, so like groomsmen. Maybe both of them are meant, but either way, friendship. Friendship with the king, friendship with the groom is here meant. And his friendship here is glimpsed in that he takes up their defense. There's something just incredibly encouraging about having a friend standing with you, isn't there? I'm reading the novel Olav Audensen. Pat, I expected in the library by week's end. <laughs> Same author as Kristen Lavren's daughter, so we're back in medieval Norway. Olav is an orphan. He's been promised in marriage to the daughter of a nobleman. And Olav is trying to finalize the details of 
his marriage with this nobleman, but he's making no progress. He's treated as a child. Suddenly, Arnvid, friend of Olav and kinsman to this nobleman, takes up his cause with a passion and an intensity that's fueled by friendship. He takes it up first with the nobleman, and then he takes it up with the bishop himself. He goes to the greatest of lengths on behalf of his friend to see his friend's good secured. It's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, even among our human interactions, we can see the beauty of that. We can extol the virtues and loveliness of friendship. Friendship steeped in love and loyalty and giving at cost. Well, do we sing, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus himself uses this language. I call you my friends. Here we see that friendship exercised as they're following him in faith. On their behalf, in defense of them. In the face of these criticisms and even attacks, it is the Lord who comes to their aid. And that's encouraging for us, is it not? As we receive the same call that they received, follow me, follow me, do what I command you. That's what it means to follow him. And know that wherever I am, the cloak of my protection covers you. And make no mistake, beloved, this is no well-meaning individual who is ultimately helpless. This is the king with all authority and power. This is not just a nobleman. This is the nobleman of noblemen. <laughs> That's what we sing, king of kings, lord of lords. One excelling all others who condescends and is not ashamed to call you his family. Now he gives us criteria for entering into that comfort. And make no mistake, it is a vast realm of comfort, beloved. To know that Christ takes up your defense. And he feels the blows that come against you as if they were blows befalling him. Psalm, Psalm, why do you persecute me? What does he say? Is that one scene in the gospel reminds us people come to him and they say, your mother and your sister and your brothers are outside. They want to talk to you. And what does he say? He says, these here at my feet, hearkening unto my word, this is my family. These are my kinsmen. Whoever does the will of my father has been born from above. And they belong to me. And I extend to them the deepest loyalty 
and love conceivable. Indeed, it is written in the blood that flows through my, my veins. Ask yourself, beloved, have you come in faith to this king? And if you have, make no mistake, you have been made the recipient of a friend like no other. Take good cheer from that. Let it embolden you as you follow after him in faith. Leave your defense to him. Entrust yourself to his faithfulness as you devote yourself to the life of love that he leads you in. And know that this is a delight to father and son. For his word makes that plain. If you haven't known this friend, consider what we read last week. He is not ashamed to draw near to sinners as the good physician. But the same ones whom he heals, he then brings into the orbit of his closest friendship. He doesn't heal you to keep you from afar. He doesn't draw near to you in sickness as the good physician to keep you in the sick ward. No, he brings you into the wedding feast, beloved. For your joy is in no small part due to the fact that he's your friend. And you're very near the heart of the matter. King defends his own, and that not mildly, but plainly. It's an open defense here. And sometimes that does happen, doesn't it? We're attacked in the world's eyes, or even in the church. One portion of the body turns against the, another portion of the body, and sometimes there is open vindication. The Lord vindicates those who are following after him, and he chastens those of his own house who have gotten it wrong, or he pronounces a humbling word upon those who are not in his house who have gotten it wrong. Sometimes he does this openly, and we ought not to miss that. It takes place in his church where the ministry of Christ unfolds, and we ought to be grateful that that happens. But there is a sense in which sometimes the open vindication is delayed. And this teaches us to wait and trust and hope. Because he assures us here that he will not allow his, his servants to suffer unjust accusations. And even if he locates our hope on the day of open vindication for us, he assures it, he assures us that it will come. And even this encourages. But it's not just the defense, it's the joy that he comes to bring. He doesn't just protect us, he goes above and beyond, he gives us true joy. That's what he says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He doesn't say that explicitly, but he says, mourning is inappropriate. I'm here. <laughs> he invites us into the image of the wedding feast. 
And we had a wedding feast here. We had two wedding feasts this year, and they were both lovely, but quite frankly, they fell far short of the biblical standard. (laughs) Because a biblical wedding, or at least one appropriating the culture of that time, would have lasted at least a week. So, Andrew and Lucas, you owe us six more days of a feast. (laughs) It would have been... The epitome of joy, the epitome of feasting, it is the experience that encapsulates celebration. If the funeral, on the one hand, is the embodiment of the day of sorrow, the wedding, on the other hand, is the embodiment of the day of joy. And Christ says very much that this is what sits near the heart of what is now taking place, because I'm here. Now, interestingly, this confluence of blessing, of protection and joy, shows up pretty regularly in the Psalter. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Protection, safety, just like we considered. He protects and defends. But then the Psalm goes on to say, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God. Provision and joy. The blessings of protection and provisions, the blessing of safety and joy. These blessings appear to Zion because God is present in Zion. And this was an anticipation of the full presence of God with sinners in friendship in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not that surprising that Emmanuel here says, if you're with me, you're safe and full of joy. Because that's what my presence is, beloved. There's so much goodness in this picture. There's so much richness in this being the heart of the matter. Jesus is the bridegroom. Like, just think about that. Jesus presents himself as the king of Psalm 45, just arrayed in majesty, nobility. We've lost something of this. I mean, you got to read Kristen Lavram's daughter, Ola Vaudenson, get a sense of that, like a nobleman, like, like you're standing in awe. Oh, this is one with stature. This is one excelling all others, and it's his wedding day. Let the whole world rejoice. The stunning thing here again, the picture of Christ as groom here harkens back to the other groom in Scripture. Who's the other groom in Scripture? It's God. In stunning condescension, God presents himself as husband to his people. God is the one who betrothes an undeserving people to himself and thereby dignifies and ennobles her beyond wildest dreams, beloved. Christ is presenting himself in the light of that, as 
no insignificant person. I'm, I'm the husband. And their joy is full because I'm right here with them. Then we can mark that the heart of the Christian religion is not this dour, affected gloominess. The heart of the matter is the king excelling all others on his wedding day. And then he gives us two points of entry into it. One, the text itself, is that we're his closest companions. I watched our two grooms, our two regent grooms, and the good and godly young men who surrounded them in love. delighted at their youthful, boyish exuberance. <laughs> it was a portrait of two, true joy. <laughs> and their joy was shared by the groom's joy because of their nearness and love for the groom. I expect the same thing took place in the women's quarters where I was not allowed. But that fondness taking the shape of actual participation in the joy. I think we can also see the Lord's kindness to John's disciples here because John the Baptist was the one who used this image first. He's the one who said, look, it's the bridegroom who's the main thing. The friend of the bridegroom is just delighted that the bridegroom gets the bride. And so even here, the Lord's tenderness to these disciples say, look, your, your teacher, the one whom you love, this is what he was looking for. Why don't you join us? But the other stunning image that Scripture invites us is, is that the church is the bride. Well, that's something. <laughs> Psalm 45, you stand in awe of this king, this nobleman, this one excelling all others on his wedding day. And you come to find out he's here for you. That everything that he has is yours. That all of his love, all of his affection, all of his loyalty, all of his riches... Everything that he is, everything that he has, he delights to give to you. Well, no wonder, beloved, the heart of the matter is joy. That's what he insists upon, and it's something that he complicates when he here alludes to the days that come. He said, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and then they will fast. I think this does introduce a layer of complexity that taken away here clearly refers to the death that he's going to experience. It's going to be a violent death. Again, we can mark how in kindness he's 
communicating to the disciples of John. He's like, look, your, your teacher was taken from you. And the path of John, in a lot of ways, is the path that I'm going to have to walk because he was my herald. And if they treat the messengers of the king this way, we know how they're going to treat the king. So again, he's attuning the disciples of John to the riches of what's taking place in a way that he wasn't dealing with the Pharisees in because they just weren't earnestly asking. There is encouragement for that. He delights earnest inquiries. He's not going to turn away an earnest inquiry. But he can also tell the difference between an earnest inquiry and one that's disingenuous. But even in the face of his absence, it's not that sorrow has displaced the heart of the matter. And Peter seems to make this plain. Peter would have been there. He would have heard him say this very thing. He would have experienced the day of him being taken away, which incidentally was a day of no mean failure on Peter's behalf. It would have been a dark day for Peter. He would have experienced this very reality. And yet Peter writes, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You don't now see him. I saw him. I was there when the king's presence literally meant we didn't have to be afraid of sickness. It couldn't come near us. Every time it came near us, he's like, get away. <laughs> We didn't have to be afraid of demons. Every time they came near us, he was like, get away. We didn't have to be afraid of death. The next scene, he's going to go raise the little girl from the dead. Like the king's presence was the fullness of joy, and I experienced it in this little circle. He says, but even though the king isn't here anymore bodily, Make no mistake, the heart of the matter is established. Forgiveness has been accomplished. Peace has been accomplished. God and sinner have been reconciled. You are temples in which God dwells, not figuratively. Oh, there's still reason for joy. <laughs> it's just something that we see now by faith. All those things are taken by faith, beloved. They're not any less real than him healing from disease. They're not any less real than him raising from the dead. You just see them through a different eye. The eye of faith. Such that when Christ says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Why? Because he says you're forgiven. And your joy is found in taking him at his word. The same way he calls you to lay down your life in love and follow after him, you can know that that's the path of joy, even if it's hard, because he said so, and he's trustworthy and good, and your joy is experienced as you exercise that faith and you take him at his word. It's the same joy. It's just enjoyed via the eye of faith. But let's not downplay this. 
He says the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. The heart of the matter is joy, but we're still waiting, aren't we? We're still longing for the day that once more we see him face to face. Isn't this what John says? John would have been there too. John says it has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the day of the perfection of joy being established. And so just as it was this would have been inappropriate for his disciples to mourn while he was with them, there is a sense in which it's inappropriate for us to insist that it's only ever joy now without any layers of the yearning, the longing, the anticipation. That's where he places our fasting now. He situates it in this sort of tension. You ask yourself, well, is Jesus with us? Because according to the logic of the text, if Jesus is with us, then we shouldn't be fasting. Or at least not like they wanted to. So maybe a better way to say it is, if Jesus is with us, we shouldn't be mourning. So then the question is, is Jesus with us? That's the question you have to ask yourself. And it appears that it's a complicated question with a complicated answer. Jesus himself is going to say later, look, the poor you always have with you, but you will not always have me with you. Okay? So we're anticipating time when he's not with us. But then he closes Matthew's gospel saying, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay? So he is with us. And the loveliness of this tension is what I already expressed. He is with us. I'll say spiritually, but that won't communicate it because it means by virtue of the Holy Spirit. The very fact that the Spirit indwells you, indwells us, is Christ's presence. And you can do a study on the Holy Spirit wherever there's... The spirit, there is life. And wherever there is life, there is joy. But then this other reality of longing for the bodily presence of Christ. The way it's been said, it is a real absence and a real presence. A true absence and a true presence. And it is in this tension that the Christian life unfolds. And yet at the same time, It's still reasonably set forth as new garments and new wine, which are the paraphernalia of the wedding day, beloved. <laughs> That's how it closes. No one puts on a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. What are we to make of these images? One line of interpretation is the Lord deals with us in our weaknesses in gentleness and wisdom. 
The old garments and the old skins are frail and weak, just as the disciples are weak and frail. And the Lord strengthens them in the joy of his presence to establish them for the coming difficulty of his absence. To deal with weakness in unseasonable harshness is the surest way to destroy. This is how Chrysostom, Calvin, Beza, Matthew Henry, and J.C. Ryle interpret this passage. These are some of the best and godliest interpreters of Scripture. And I think the point is beautiful and absolutely right, but I have no idea how they got that from these images. <laughs> that does not seem to me to be the plain meaning of what he is saying here. But we can say that what they are saying is exactly right, and it's the exact point that Christ is going to make not long after this when he says, the bruised reed he does not break, and the smoldering wick he does not quench. I am meek, I am gentle, I am humble, I am lowly. Come and learn from me. He deals with weak disciples in gentleness to strengthen them. And there is such a good and important word in that for us. Because we all have weaknesses, beloved. And if we operate with the notion that he deals with our weaknesses and harshness, I guarantee the direction that you will run. And it won't be towards him. Hear the word that these godly interpreters wrongly speak from this passage. <laughs> when Olav Audenson felt the coming strength in his changing body, and he looked upon the delicate frame of his young betrothed, his heart was filled with tenderness, which longed to cover her frailties with his strength. Behold the strength of our king's gentleness. So frequently we mistake gentleness for weakness. Make no mistake. It is the beauty of strength. But the plain and obvious meaning of these verses is not that. I think the images plainly communicate two things. First, you can't simply fit Christ neatly into the former way of life, just as a general point. That's the basic point he's making. The disciples of John and the Pharisees say, look, we know what religion is. We know what the life of religion is. We've been doing it all this time without you. We're willing to consider what you have to say, but we're not going to change what we've been doing. You fit into our mold. Jesus says that's the surest way to destroy everything. <laughs> Jesus says what you've been doing and who I am cannot be combined in this way. Consider what he said. Leave everything, follow me. There's a break there, isn't there? It's not just business as usual and we'll just fit Christ in. Leave everything, follow me, and you live. I think we want to keep Christ's claim upon us pretty neatly confined, don't we? That's just a product of you wanting to be Lord. Like, look, I'll, I'll bow to your authority insofar as it suits me. Here we go. 
I'm willing to listen to you insofar as I already agree with you. Here we go. This is why ministers are called to proclaim the whole counsel of God. The Lord loves you too much to let you operate under that foolish notion of who he is, who you are, and what you need. This is why we read sequentially through the scriptures. This is why we preach sequentially through the scriptures. A lot of this is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. A lot of God's word is uncomfortable. That's the point. The discomfort is life <laughs> because it's challenging our wrong notions. It's challenging our predilections towards darkness. It's challenging our ignorance, our sin. Not for the sake of challenging it, but to bring us into the light, beloved, where there is joy. Do you listen to sermons this way? Do you come to hear God's word read and preached this way? Or are you just listening for confirmation of what you already believe? Like, I'll, I'll listen insofar as he tells me what I already know is true. Like, that's the posture of a fool, quite frankly. I mean, quite literally, that's the posture of a fool. One who comes before God's word in humility with meekness receiving the implanted word which is able to save our souls. That's the posture of life. Every week, God addresses you. Not because I'm cranking out the greatest sermons the world has ever seen, but because that's what he promises to do. Do you receive that by faith? Or do you have the posture of a fool? I think the other thing that he's pressing upon us here is just the general point that the new covenant promises require new forms of worship as well. So it's not just that Christ can't be slotted into the old ways or made to fit neatly in what we already think. It's also this big picture that says, though the new covenant is here, the people of God are going to worship in a different way. Like, this on principle is obvious. I mean, just look at old covenant worship and look at new covenant worship. Like, it's just, you, this doesn't take rock. It's like, yep, things looked pretty different. Like, godly worship looked very different <laughs> than it does now. Jesus says, yeah, I'm doing this. And that's important for us, too, because it reminds us that it's not just the wine, but the wine skins that he provides. And that teaches us not to despise the wine skins, even though, quite frankly, it's not much to look at. I mean, it's the ministry of the word, the ministry of sacraments, the ministry of prayer and praise. That's it. There's not much glory to it, but there is a glory to it. That's what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3, right? But again, it orients our heart to love the form of worship because it comes to us from the king. And to glimpse therein, not an end in and of itself, but a true means whereby true blessing is coming to pass. That's what Westminster Confession of Faith 7.6 says. Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhi exhibited, the ordinance in which the covenant is dispensed 
are the preaching of the word, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which now, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, in them is held forth in more fullness, more evidence, and more spiritual efficacy to all nations. Don't despise the small things, beloved. The humbleness of new covenant worship by no means is an indication of the weakness of new covenant worship. Isn't that the mistake they made about Christ? Mild he lay his glory by. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Maybe the meekness and the mildness is exactly what we need to be brought near and ushered into the staggering richness and power. Don't despise the small things, beloved. It may look foolish to the world. It may look weak to the world. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is greater than men. For this reason, we preach Christ crucified, the wisdom and the power of God. I pray you have the ears to receive it and the eyes of faith to behold that indeed it is not weakness standing before you, but otherworldly strength and joy. Join me in prayer. I give you thanks, Father, for your condescending mercy which comes to us in gentleness and lowliness, and brings true joy. Help us, Father, to grow in our confidence towards you and our trust in the one who leads us forth and guards us and protects us, that we may be emboldened, emboldened to follow him, emboldened to worship as those who have been made recipients of such otherworldly kindness. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.